Cool. Well, we are now up to week three of our series in um, Romans, the, the magnus, magnum opus of the New Testament, uh, the most important, uh, one of the most important books ever written in the history of the world. And today we get the wonderful privilege of getting to really the kind of the thesis statement of the book, the summary statement of the book that most scholars would agree this, this sums it all up, right? This is Paul's moment where he says, and this is what Romans is about. And so this is a big deal. You might notice um, in, on the back page, your memory verses include one of those. Which one is it, Molly? Do you want, you're looking at it for me. 116. Is 17 included there? No. 116 and 17 are worth memorizing, but hey. Um, so point is, right, if we, if we miss the, the thesis statement of Romans, uh, we're going to miss really the guts of what it's saying to us. And um, because these, these verses, are, it's, it's like the hinge on which the whole book swings. It's the hinge of the, the door of Romans, and so uh, we want to pay attention to it. Today it is, we're going to be looking at the, the very essence of the gospel message. The very essence of the gospel message. We're going to see the power of the gospel. We're also going to see the, the offense of the gospel. The power of the gospel and the offense of the gospel, and we're going to be left today with the challenge of either embracing the gospel, or rejecting the gospel, either bearing its shame or being ashamed of it, either being eager to share the gospel like Paul was or being ashamed of the gospel. Uh, we're going to be left with that choice today. And so um, today, well, why don't I just open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig straight in. We've got a lot to get through today, so we're going to jump in. Uh, Heavenly Father, yeah, we do thank you for today, Lord, the, the gift of today. Lord, every day is a gift. We can forget that sometimes, Lord, but um, Lord, today we, yeah, we woke up to your sunshine and br breathed your air and stood on your ground, Lord, and, and ate your food. And Lord, yeah, we thank you for all these good gifts that do come directly from your hand. Lord, so we thank you for these things, Lord, and we pray today that you would once more provide for us, provide for us a word, Lord, a timely word for us each Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts through this passage today. Lord, we know that your word is living and active and, and sharp as a sword, Lord, and it divides to the heart, and we pray today that you would speak and that we would hear. So, Lord, would the words of your, of your Bible come alive to us today, we pray. Amen. Let me give you a, a very brief, very simple little outline of our passage today. We're going to basically be seeing two parts. Um, the, the, it's kind of broken into two parts. I don't know if it's there. Yes, it is. Um, 8.15, it's, it's Paul's heart for the gospel. And 16 and 17, the very heart of the gospel itself. So that's the, the, that's the, that's the um, basic breakdown of the text. Let's just jump straight into verse 8. We see Paul say this. He says, I thank, first, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith, is proclaimed in all the world. I love this idea of a church's faith, just like people just sharing that and saying, have you heard about that church? Then where their faith is alive and it's, it's, it's real and they, they really do trust God. And so um, Paul, he's heard these reports from others of this church that started in Rome that he has no idea about, that he didn't plant, but word has come. And um, for us today, brief application, right, is that we live in a city, plenty other churches around us, gospel preaching, churches, faith-filled churches, 
and our first instinct towards them should always be one of thankfulness because they are, they exist because of a miracle of God in the world. They exist because God has called them into existence. And so we should, like Paul, have an instinct of thankfulness and an instinct of prayerfulness for these other churches. And so, I mean, there's a number that we, we have quite a lot to do with. Rosalie, Baptist Church, that way. Grange Baptist Church, that way. Um, other churches in our area that we love and, yeah, let's celebrate them. And let, let's also just be a little bit careful of if our instinct, our first instinct towards those churches is anything of like criticism or an instinct of comparison, maybe, all these other things that kind of are very human. No, let's, let's think of them instead with an instinct of thankfulness, as Paul does. Verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So know that Paul's been trying to get to Rome for a while. He's been really trying to get there, and he hasn't yet. And we know that he won't ever get there as a free man. He'll arrive in chains um, into the city of Rome. Verse 11, he says, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What is that spiritual gift, Paul? He says this, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I hope, you, I hope you saw what Paul just said there. He said, I'm trying to get to Rome, not just so that I can give you something, not so that I can just bless you as an apostle, but that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He doesn't see himself as a, some kind of super Christian, right? He, he understands that he needs the church to encourage him as much as he encourages the church. This mutual strengthening, right? This is what happens. This is why we do church. This is why we come together. This is why we gather, because we know that we are mutually encouraged by each other's faith. When we hear stories of, of God's work in each other's life, it encourages us, strengthens us. It's a, it's a wonderful thing we get to experience. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the Gentiles, for I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And again, he'll let them figure out who's who, which, which group he's talking about fit in which category. Um, but what he's saying is, is that he is, he is indebted. He is under obligation. He is bound both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, the wise and the foolish, all types of people. He's bound to them. Why? Because he has the gift of the gospel, which is for them. It is for them. And so what he's saying here is this. The gospel, which, which means the, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died, rose, um, that, he, that he lived, died, rose again for our salvation, to pay the price for our sins, right? Uh, that this good news, it's for all types of people. It's for all types of people. This is what he's saying when he, when he uses these kind of groups. He's, he's speaking in like, it's from these people to these people. So in modern Australia... We could come up with maybe a few kind of different groups. We might say in modern day Australia that we are, as a church, obligated to the, the, the ute driving tradies and the, the tie wearing office workers, right? We're obligated to both of those. We're, we're obligated to the flat white drinking hipsters and 
to the monster drinking bogans, right? If I can use those words, um, right? All types of people. It's, the gospel is for, it's for motorsport fans and for musical theater fans, right? It's for both types of people. It's for the, 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 the chilled out Byron Bay hippies. And it's for the stressed out suburban soccer mums, right? It's for, I'm just trying to think of all, all the stereotypes I can right now. That's all I got, right? What he's saying is that the gospel's for everyone. It's for all groups of people. And we are as a church, and Paul is as an apostle, obligated to all of them. He's bound to all of them because he has this precious gift of the gospel, which is for them. It's for them. And so church, we are obligated to all types of people. We are not ever to become monogamous. That's not the word. That's not the word. What's the word? Mono, mono, one group of people. We we always look diverse. That's right. I'm like, I can't think of the word, guys, and I'm sure it's there. We are to always look monogamous. Yeah, that's not the right word at all, is it? The Bible speaks very highly of monogamy, actually. Um, You know what I mean. The gospel is for all types of people, and so we should never look like one we should never look the same. We should always, because the gospel is for all type of people. And so it's a glorious thing when the church looks like different types of people coming together. That's what brings glory to God. And so Paul, verse 15, this, this is what he says. So he's excited about the gospel. He says, I am eager, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is eager to get to Rome so that he can preach the gospel. Now, let's think about this a little bit. Let's think about this a little bit. Why is that the case? Have they not heard the gospel before? Have, has the Roman church not heard the message of Jesus before? Of course, of course they have, otherwise they wouldn't be a church, right? You can't be a church without have hearing, have heard the gospel, without having come to faith in the message of Jesus, in the gospel. So why does Paul want to come and preach the gospel there. Did you see what I'm saying? Well, what, what we're learning here is that there is something very special about the gospel. At this church, we like to use the language of gospel-centered. You might have heard us say that a whole bunch, right? We are a gospel-centered church. And this is what we're saying, right? We believe that the gospel actually sits at the center of the church and is its, it's, it's the sun around which we orbit. It's our functional center. And this verse is one of the reasons that has convinced us why this should be the case. There's a very simple version of the gospel, which says that's what you believe to become a Christian, and then after that, you don't need that gospel anymore. We get onto the, the deepest stuff of theology. It's a trap. That kind of thinking is a trap. No, we learn here that the gospel isn't just how we get saved as a Christian. It is how we grow as a Christian. It is how we go deeper in faith as a Christian. We need it every day. Tim Keller, he has this one line he uses all the time. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z. It is the entire story from beginning to to the end. And so the gospel is how we are saved, yes, but it is how we also live in faith. It fuels our faith. might say it this way, that the gospel isn't just the door by which we enter into the house of faith. It is the house itself, right? It's the door frame, it's the door handle, it's the, the floor, it's the walls, it's the roof, it's every single part of the house that we live in with God. It is of the gospel. And so today, if you're visiting with us, 
and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, today this is my message to you. You need the gospel today. And if you're a Christian here today who does love Jesus, guess what? You need the gospel today. Again, right now, you need that to be true today. You need to place your faith in the gospel again today. And guess what? You'll need to do that again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. This is how we live in faith. Um, in, in my own journey of faith, this was the peace that I just didn't grasp. This was the peace that kept me from coming to God for, I don't know how long, but at least some time. This was the peace that I just did, couldn't grasp. I'd grown up in the church. I had believed that Jesus died for my sin, rose from the dead. I was convinced of that. Didn't need to be convinced about that. I knew that God loved me. Didn't need to be convinced of that. I knew all these things. And I also knew that all I had to do was believe in Jesus to receive salvation. I knew that. I was like, okay. And yet, I was still living in a sense of fear. I was still afraid because I knew that the day that I actually committed myself to God, I would fall short again. Do you know what I'm talking about? I very, like, I think I was like 10 at the time. Um, I knew that I couldn't live a perfect life, a perfectly holy life. I knew the depths of my sin, even as a 10-year-old, I think, and I knew that I would always fall short. And so, look, maybe this is you this morning as well. You, you believe the gospel, you believe the claims of Christianity, you believe it all, but you just know you're just not, quote-unquote, good enough. You just know that. You just know that deep down, you couldn't do it. Too hard. Too, too hard. So what, it, what had happened for me is that I was believing a kind of a false gospel, that said that I was saved by faith, and then after that, it was really up to me to figure it out and make sure I didn't stuff up. Otherwise, I'd get kicked out of the family. That's effectively what I was believing. And, and what happened is that my neighbor, who was maybe 12 years old, he said something to me. I, don't, I can't remember the words he said, but it certainly wasn't particularly profound because he was a 12-year-old. But it contained, but what, what was behind what he said, what it contained was... This, this idea, right, that being a Christian doesn't mean we're instantly perfect and we never sin again. How, how could we do that? That's impossible. No. He said what happens is that you receive, you get, you get grace when you sin. I was like, oh. Well, in that case, I'm like, I'm in, right? Like, it was like, that was like the last thing that was holding me back. And after I realized that I could receive grace, that, was a, that, I'd, that I'd live in grace, Perpetually, that pressure just got lifted off my shoulders. I believed, and literally, while hanging out with my neighborhood boys, while walking through the backyard, I prayed to the Lord in my heart and gave my life to Jesus. Just like that. But that, that was the day that I first understood like the, the entirety of the gospel. Not just that I was saved by faith, but that I lived. That I would live by faith. I'd be sustained by faith and grace every single day of my life. Maybe another way to say this is that... Um, the gospel isn't just like, the, the gospel is like the first breath of air we ever breathe truly as Christians. We don't just take one breath though, do we? That first breath of, that first true breath, like a baby, baby's first, first breath after it's being born. Life comes in to the, the, the veins, right? We, we, we begin to live for the first time and yet we don't just stop at one breath. No, we keep breathing in the grace of God day by day until we meet him face to face. This is the Christian life. You need 
the gospel today, you'll need it tomorrow. And so in this church, we want to continue to fly the flag and say, yes, we will always need the grace of God. Always need it. We always need to share it, uh, believe it, trust in it, live in it. We live by faith. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is where we're going in verses 16 and 17. The very heart of the gospel. These are the the thesis statements of Paul for the book of Romans. Paul says, I am eager. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Do you hear that? Everyone who believes. All types of people. It then goes on first to the Jew, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These verses, as I've said, are the, the very nerve center of the book of Romans. This is the center of the book of Romans. We're going to take it in two parts. There's a million ways you can cut this up, but we're going to do it like this. We're going to look at the content of the gospel and then the offense of the gospel. Content of the gospel and the offense of the gospel. So here we go. First, the content of the gospel, verse 16 and 17. Four, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. How is it? How is it the power of God for salvation? He goes on to say this, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. This little, this little phrase, righteousness of God, uh, if you know anything about theology, has caused a great deal of debate. Uh, there are books and books and books and books and books and books and books on this one little phrase, um, both through history and especially, especially in the last 30, 40 years. We're not going to go into any of that. Um, I can point you in the, in the direction of some good resources on that. We're not going to get stuck on it, uh, except to say that it has, I think it likely has a dual meaning, and we just got to embrace both, I think, rather than picking one or the other. Firstly, this righteousness of, this, this righteousness of God that is revealed is referring to God's own righteousness, that he is just, he is good, he, he, does, he does what is right. So uh, in the gospel it's saying God's good justice is shown to be true. He's shown to be a just God in the gospel. But then also, it's also talking about this gift of righteousness. This is really important. The gift of righteousness that comes from God that is revealed for us, a gift that he gives to who? The unrighteous. That's, that's us, guys. We are the unrighteous who receive, by faith, a gift of righteousness in Christ, so that, as we said last week, sinners might become saints. This is how that happens. We didn't labor it last week. We're laboring it now instead. Right? The way sinners become saints is that there is a gift of righteousness revealed. From faith, for faith, it comes from faith. It is obtained through faith. It is a gift given through faith. And you know what? This, this, this idea comes up again, chapter 3, 21 to 26. So we'll look at it again there in a couple of weeks' time. But this is where we first see this idea. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed for sinners. For sinners that we might become saints. 
in history, there's one particular occasion where this, um, one particular account of someone discovering this, Martin Luther, uh, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a perfect man, uh, and yet his account of studying this phrase, and he says, he, talk, he talks about hitting his head against this phrase, like knocking his head against the wall until he could understand what it meant. And I'm going to actually just read at length his account of this because this is, this is really good. This is, this is as he came to understand that Paul's talking about a gift. So this is paraphrased from the German, obviously. He says this, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, has this, has this honesty. He says, therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to that dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and that statement, the righteous shall live by faith or the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Justifies just means makes made righteous. He, he, he declares us righteous through faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it came to be inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Isn't that good? Friends, this passage is the gate to heaven. We might receive righteousness as a gift, not through our works, but through faith alone. It is by faith, faith alone, we receive anything from God. It all comes through faith. We are declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's the theological term, justification, declared righteous before him. Verse 17, he says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. Again, tons of debate about exactly how to read that. Um, I think other translations will say something like, um, by faith from first to last, or from faith from start to finish. I think it's that kind of idea. It's, 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 it's all about faith, I think, is the big idea. So, look, you might be sitting here and thinking, yes, look, this is Christianity 101. I, like, I, I know this, I understand this, this, this is what we believe as Christians. Um, I think it'd be good for us just to stop and consider some ways, practically, where we just deny this is true as believers. I've got two practical ways, I think, that we live as if this is not true. We, didn't, we practically deny the gospel in this way. First one is this. We try, we try... Um, when we sin, we just we try and make it up to God. 
It's maybe the best way to say it. There's, there's a natural instinct in us that when our lives get messy and we're faced with the reality of our own, of our own sin still, we have a tendency to what? Put, put distance, right, between us and God. We get some distance so we can kind of try a bit harder, get, out, get, get things back in order, do a bit better for a little while. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is, is that instinct in you as well, or is it just me? <laughs> what, what's happening is we're sensing the problem, right? We look at our sin and we go, that doesn't belong in the presence of a holy God. We know that. What do we do? We think it's our job to fix it. And so to fix it, we need a little bit of space so we can work a bit harder, get things in order, and then when we're ready, we can, we can talk to God about our sin. Friends, that is a practical denial of the gospel, isn't it? What's it doing? It's saying, it's my job to fix the thing. What does the gospel say? Bring your sin to God and he will forgive you. That's the God. Bring your sin to him. There is grace for you in Christ. You are justified by faith alone, not through your works. That's, a, that's the gospel of works. Whose righteousness are you trusting in? in that moment. You're trusting in your own righteousness. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Our righteousness comes from Christ. And so to put ourselves through some kind of penance as if that makes us, gives us better standing with God, that does not honor him. That dishonors him. Why? Because it plays down the blood of Jesus as if you feeling bad for a week is the same thing as the shed blood of Christ. Friends, perish the thought. Perish the thought. No, it's not by feeling sorry enough or doing good deeds. It's through faith alone. It is through the blood of Christ. It's through the cross. And so don't, yeah, in that moment, don't put your feeling sorry on, on, on par with the blood of Christ. You need grace in that moment. Let me share with this, this from Dane Ortland. He said, he says, well, he says, it is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. It's counterintuitive, friends. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some reminding. We're going to need the gospel preached. We're going to need to share it with one another. We're going to need reminding that this is how it is. Day by day, we need to remember it is not through our works, but through the cross of Jesus that we are saved. Maybe the second way we, we, um, we play down, we deny the gospel practically in our lives, is that when we feel like we're struggling in sin, we double down on it. Repentance just feels too hard. And so we're like, well, we're already this far gone. We might as well double down a bit more. If we're saved by faith alone, then there is no such thing as, I've already stuffed up so I can't repent, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? We're saved by faith alone, then what faith looks like in that moment is not walking away from him, but walking to him, right? What faith looks like in that moment is turning to him in repentance and receiving grace. No, it's a practical denial of Jesus in the gospel when we turn away from him in our sin. So look, right now, if you are here and you are... Um, you're not yet a Christian. Today is a great day to have you at church because I get to show you quite clearly from the Bible where, where we see that you cannot earn anything from God. 
but you can receive something from God, the gift of righteousness. So if you're here today, you need to hear this. You cannot earn your keep. You cannot win his approval, but you can receive his love. You can receive his love. You can receive his grace. It is through Jesus and by his grace alone. And so you can receive that gift today. As we just read, right? The most counterintuitive aspect of the gospel. It's not once you're good enough that you can receive it. Once you acknowledge that, you can't get there. That's the moment of spiritual rebirth. Let me finish with this, uh, finish this part with this. This is Michael Bird. He says this. The gospel manifests God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, people-uniting, super-uber-mega-grace, power that results in salvation. Just making up words there. Using some German, why not? The gospel is the power of God. It's the super-uber-mega-grace power of God that results in salvation. So let's not forget that. Secondly, or finally, the offense of the gospel. Content of the gospel, salvation by faith alone, by grace. The offense of the gospel. Friends, the gospel is offensive. It is intrinsically offensive. It has sharp edges to it. It has sharp edges. When we come close to it, it does actually scratch us a little bit. It has sharp edges. Why is the gospel offensive? Well, I just want to think with you through four ways that the gospel is offensive to us in our world. The gospel, firstly, is offensive because it insists, it actively insists upon your guilt and your brokenness. It is not going to let that one go. You you can't believe the gospel and think that you're all good. You just can't do it. It insists upon your brokenness. It insists that you are underneath the just judgment of God for your sin. I was not going to apologize about that one. Do you think that's a popular idea today? I don't think there's much in the Bible that is as unpopular as this idea that we are underneath, presently, the wrath of God for our sin. We are all guilty. We are outside the grace of God without Jesus. In fact, if you come back next week, we're going to be looking at some of the most offensive words in the Bible. So good luck. Pray for me for next week. Um, And it's about the wrath of God coming upon the world. The gospel is offensive because it insists on our our guilt and brokenness. Secondly, the gospel not not only insists on our guilt and brokenness, it insists that you are unable to fix that. How offensive that is to our world that is obsessed with self-autonomy. To be told, you can't do it. You need someone else. You are helpless to fix it. Anyone here love feeling dependent on someone else? Love feeling helpless? <laughs> of course not. It, 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 it hurts our pride. It hurts our pride big time. But this is what God says is true of us. You are not the answer to your brokenness. You are not the answer to your sinfulness. How could you be? You are how we got here. You are how you got here, right? No. What you need is the work of salvation from above which means you need to humble yourself to receive it. Martin Luther, again, let me quote him again on this one because he said it beautifully well. He says, the gospel, no, God receives 
none but those who are forsaken. Restores health to none but those who are sick. Gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead. God has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. And friends, I hope you are not above that. I hope you're not above identifying yourself as those things without God. For in the offense of the gospel is the power of God, you understand? We need to humble ourselves. Third, the third reason the gospel is offensive is that in it, the gospel insists that our wickedness is so great that Christ had to die. Our sinfulness is so great that Christ had to die. It's of such a serious nature, we can't just laugh it off. Again, this is what our world wants to do, just pretend that sin's not so bad, so like, well, what's the problem here? No, this is not something we can laugh off. There are no band-aid solutions to our wickedness. We need an industrial strength salvation from an industrial strength savior. Fourth, the gospel is offensive because it insists that we submit ourselves to his lordship. Again, we live in a day and age where self-autonomy is king, and to insist upon any authority that sits above any individual is, it's almost like doing harm to a person to insist that. This is so offensive today, but there is no grace without a bended knee before the king. There's no grace without a bended knee and a surrendered heart. We cannot receive salvation into our lives from the king if we do not acknowledge him as king and surrender ourselves to him as king. And listen, these four things, the offensiveness of the gospel has always been offensive to the world. It always has been. Um, We are not the first today in 21st century Australia to experience the incredible mockery that comes from the world. Um, I've got probably the first recorded case of mockery that we can find I'm going to throw up that, that slide of, um, this, is, this is around, this is in Rome, on a Roman wall in AD 200-ish. We don't know exactly, but it's, 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 like, it's ancient Rome. And I don't know if you can see, but it's a scratching of a donkey on a cross, or a man with a donkey's head on a cross. And the, 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 um, the text there reads, Alexa Menos, some guy, worships his god. That is, that is just straight up mockery of the crucified king, Jesus. They're saying, it's absurd that you would worship a guy that was killed on a cross. That's absurd. That's ridiculous thing to worship. And this is, this is ancient. It's been pretty prolific since then. Um, back in 2012, look at this one. Just for, uh, like trying to find a modern example of mockery of the gospel is hard to find. Here's this one. This is Times Square, Christmas time. The American atheists put up a billboard, keep the merry, dump the myth. Picture of Santa, keep the merry, so we're happy with Santa, but get rid of Jesus, dump the myth. That was 2012, and again, you don't have to look far to find those kind of things around in our world today. It's offensive. It's going to draw mockery. As Christians, this is just something we're going to have to deal with. And so we have to make a choice as Christians. When it comes down to it, we only really are left with two options. Either... We are ashamed of the gospel, and with it, ashamed of Jesus. Or we embrace the gospel, embrace even the shame, and embrace the message of Jesus as true and wonderful, despite how foolish it looks from the outside. Either we abandon Jesus out of embarrassment, which is what we're doing if we are ashamed of the gospel, we're abandoning Jesus, or... We stand with him and we stand with Paul and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel.
And friends, I say today, we take our stand and we say, I am not ashamed of the gospel like Paul. Um, let me just, look, I've got to point this out. Jesus says to his disciples, he addresses this issue. He says this, if, this is Mark 38, or at least a paraphrase, if you are ashamed of me before this generation, I will be ashamed of you when I come back in the glory of the Father. When we're talking about feeling ashamed of the gospel, we've got to remember we're actually talking about being ashamed of Jesus. And Jesus quite clearly is going to say, that's a problem. In the same way that I was, if I was ashamed of my own wife, that would be a problem, correct? How are you supposed to have a relationship with someone you're ashamed of? No, these are actual, genuine, eternal stakes. These are. And so I think if you are like me and we, we dare not abandon Jesus, if that thought is horrendous to you, if we dare not abandon Jesus, then we dare not be ashamed of his gospel. We dare not be ashamed of his gospel. We dare not soften the message to clean it up, make it more palatable. Because in so doing, we're denying Jesus. We are. Yes, it is going to draw mockery. It, it is. It's going to come. And so we should, I, I pray today we would resolve as a church to stand and to withstand the mockery that is going to come, right? Resolve today with clear heads that when that day comes, which it's coming, that we will not be ashamed of him. There's going to be plenty of opportunities to be ashamed. Let me just show you one, one maybe ultra-obvious example that I can just put my finger on and go, hey, here's a thing to think about. Um, maybe an hour ago or so, we stood up and mentioned that we we're going to be kicking off Alpha soon. When we mentioned that, and we talked about maybe inviting a friend or family member along, someone that might be interested, does the idea of even having that conversation with someone like, make you squirm because it's so uncomfortable? Are you ashamed of the idea of inviting someone to come talk about Jesus? Look, you've got to be careful. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Is that automatic posture just obvious in your heart? If it is, maybe today's the day to repent of that. Consider what that means. Let me finish with this before we pray. This is Michael Bird again. He says this, I'm unashamed of, I am ashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I am afraid to tell it. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I'm too intimidated to uphold it. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I'm too lazy to teach it. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I'm too selfish to live a life worthy of it. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I make other things the center of fellowship. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I affirm any political, economic, or social position that denies what the Lord Jesus taught. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I make excuses for the unchristian behavior of my political heroes. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I spend more money on chocolate than charity. I'm ashamed of the gospel when my social life becomes more important than my church life. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I spend more time combing my hair than active in prayer. Friends, the power of God is in the gospel. The power of God is in the gospel. Do not be ashamed of it. For in it, the righteous, the unrighteous are made righteous. Sinners are made saints. And it is for you. It is for me. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your grace that comes to us, the undeserving. Lord, your, your gospel is for the broken and the hurting, but also for the liars, also for the hypocrites, for the angry. The gospel is for us. It's for me. Lord, I pray you would strengthen our resolve to stand with you, to not be ashamed, to count the cost, yes, but remember that the world hated you and that the message of the gospel, it, it sounds like foolishness to the world. But Lord, we know, we who have experienced its power, we know that it is the power for salvation. Lord, help us walk in it day by day, live lives of faith. Lord, would we glory in it? Lord, would we worship you for it? Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that we would identify in our hearts where it is we are living practical denial of our justification by faith, where we look instead to ourselves to earn favor with you. Or maybe we treat our sin as safe. Lord, this, the, the sin that meant you had to go to the cross, Lord, we, 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 we deny that. Yeah. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in us. Would we never forget? Would we, like Paul, be eager, unashamed, eager to preach the gospel, unashamed of its power and its truth? Ultimately, Lord, unashamed of you. I pray that each and every one of us right now, Lord, that the Holy Spirit work in our hearts to, to know what this means for us. Give us the power to live it out. It's the name of our Savior that we pray these things. Amen. Thanks, guys.